0: A lot of people have a soft spot in their hearts for animals. Just think about how many times you've noticed someone ooing and aahing with their nose pressed up against a pet shop window. Or maybe you've done that yourself. And if you're like me, you've wondered, what's that dog thinking? Is he thinking, pick me, pick me? Or maybe, keep on walking, buddy. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki. And this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Over the last few weeks and continuing through mid-March, WFUV has been giving animals a voice by showcasing organizations that work to care for and protect animals in public service announcements. And this past week, we featured a series of special reports on animal welfare in our daily newscasts. This morning on Cityscape, we're continuing our coverage of animal welfare issues. There are tens of thousands of cats estimated to be living on the streets of New York City. A growing movement of people is working to keep that number under control with what they say is the most humane and effective method. Reporter Jacob
1: Anderson has our story. Debbie Romano is hiding behind a car in Astoria, Queens. She has one end of a string in her hand. The other end is attached to a stick propping up a metal trap on the sidewalk next to someone's bushes. Her prey? Cats.
0: There's
2: a lot of them. I just caught eight black ones over here the other day. But, uh... They come running from across the street. They come from up the block. They come from all over.
1: One cat slowly approaches, ducks under the trap, and begins eating the food inside. Romano doesn't move. She thinks there's one more cat still in the bushes.
3: I want to see if the other one comes out. If not, I'll get this one.
1: Romano yanks the string, and the trap falls.
2: Okay, get the trap. Hurry up. Hurry, hurry, hurry.
1: The cat freaks out, and starts thrashing around in the cage while Debbie and a neighborhood resident who's helping her rush up to the trap. She tries to coax the cat through a door in the trap into a smaller carrying cage.
2: Okay, baby. Okay.
1: Unlike hunters of other animals, Romano is working to keep this cat alive and healthy. She practices a method called TNR, Trap, Neuter, Returned. It's a labor-intensive process. In two days here, Romano has trapped only nine cats out of the thousands around the city. But advocates say TNR is the kindest way to deal with them, and ultimately more sustainable than just feeding them and hoping they don't become a nuisance. You know, you can afford to feed six cats. Mike Phillips works with the New York City Mayor's Animal Alliance, specifically with the Feral Cat Initiative. But then if those six cats turn into 50, soon... There's not enough territory, so they start spreading out, and then you can just visualize the, the reproductive invasion of a neighborhood. In years past, cats would be trapped and then euthanized. That's what TNR folks say some of their neighbors still want. But Phillips says trap-neuter return is ultimately more effective than just removing the cats. He says returning them to the block prevents other unspayed and unneutered ones from moving in and the fixed cats that stay are less prone to noisy fighting and mating and smelly territorial marking. Phillips says over 4,000 people have been TNR certified in the city. An organization called Neighborhood Cats offers training workshops almost every weekend. Debbie Romano, the cat trapper, teaches classes in Queens. Getting certified gives caretakers free access to traps and to $5 spay and neutering services through the ASPCA. New York City recently passed a law designating trap-neuter return as its official policy for dealing with feral cats. Jane Hoffman is the president of the Mayor's Animal Alliance. She says the alliance doesn't take official positions on laws, but she's also a founding member of the New York City Bar Association's Animal Law Committee. She says she was asked her opinion during the writing of the TNR law.
0: We need to make it clear that these people are doing a good thing, that this is the only thing that works. Trap kill doesn't work, ignore the situation doesn't work, that trap near return is the answer, and I wanted that acknowledged.
1: New York City has had a growing TNR community since around 2000. Some of them are worried that the legal mandate will bring rules that ultimately make it harder for them to keep doing what they've done for years on their own. The city's Department of Health is in the process of finalizing its regulations for the TNR law. The Neighborhood Cats website lists around 70 other cities across the United States that have laws supporting TNR, but they say the regulations can sometimes be too onerous. Some require caretakers to trap and sterilize every single cat in a colony, which is said to be quite difficult sometimes. Neighborhood Cats says that kind of thing could discourage people from getting involved in TNR, and they don't want that here. For Cityscape, I'm Jacob Anderson. Every now and then
0: a story surfaces in the news about teenagers who torture stray cats for kicks. The organization Heart, which stands for Humane Education Advocates Reaching Teachers, works to foster compassion for all living beings, including animals. Mina Alagappan is Heart's executive director. She's with us now in the studio. Mina, thanks so much for coming in.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: What's the mission of your organization?
3: Our mission is to foster compassion and respect for other human beings, animals, and the environment by educating youth and teachers in humane education.
0: Are schools in New York State required to teach kids about animal welfare issues?
3: Interestingly, yes. There is actually a law that's been in effect for over 60 years, Section 809 of the New York State Education Law, that requires that every publicly funded elementary school provide instruction in the humane treatment and protection of animals. Unfortunately, though, this law has largely gone unenforced, and and many educators and administrators are unaware of it even. There is a strong penalty provision in the statute. New York has one of the strongest humane education laws. The penalty provision basically calls for withdrawal of school funding for noncompliance but it 's never been enforced or tested through litigation, and no one wants to take money away from the schools. But we do try to raise awareness about the law.
0: I was going to ask you, are you a watchdog when it comes to that to go into schools and see if they're actually abiding by this law? We
3: are not no we 're not a watchdog. What we try to do is help schools comply, but we do you know we do engage in some advocacy and we encourage legislation and support legislation that would um, you know call for surveying schools for compliance and assisting schools to comply and you know doing an audit that kind of thing.
0: Why is it important to teach kids humane education?
3: For multiple reasons, but you know I think fundamentally we want children to be able to empathize and you know act compassionately. And there are a lot of um, studies that have documented the link between childhood animal abuse and later interpersonal violence. I mean, serial killers like Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, uh, Jeffrey Dahmer have all had a history of abusing animals. And this is a, a very serious issue. The FBI even looks at animal cruelty and assessing the dangerousness of criminals In fact, the state animal anti-cruelty laws in over 40 states have been elevated to felony status as a result of this violence link. And what humane education can do is help nip this violent pattern of behavior in the bud by really fostering compassion for animals at an early age.
0: What kinds of lessons are you bringing into the classroom?
3: A variety. I should say that humane education's been around for over 100 years but there's a lot of definitional ambivalence around it and you know various organizations have defined it differently traditionally humane societies have focused on responsible companion animal care but at heart we take a very comprehensive holistic view of humane education so it encompasses human rights issues animal welfare environmental ethics, and most importantly, the interconnectedness of these three areas. So our lessons are broad. We cover a range of issues, but fundamentally, it's really all—we discuss heavy issues in the classroom, such as uh, climate change, uh, child labor, dog and cat overpopulation, dog fighting, factory farming. I mean, it's a range, but it's always in the context of empowering students to have them recognize that they as individuals can make a difference and help alleviate these problems.
0: How can schools easily incorporate humane education into their curriculum?
3: Actually, remarkably, it it is very easy to incorporate humane education to standard subjects. We frequently go into classrooms with social studies classes, English language arts, mathematics, science, Um, I'll give you an example. Um, When we discuss dog and cat overpopulation, the important issue here is that all these animals, all these dogs and cats that, you know, don't have homes are being euthanized, not all of them, but many of them are being euthanized in the city shelters. So, When students realize that and they realize the importance of spaying and neutering and what can happen when you don't do that, um, they're pretty horrified. They go through a math exercise, for example, where we have them look at if you have one unspayed dog and her mate and offspring over just two years that aren't neutered or spayed, what happens? And it could be over 500 dogs. They're even more horrified to find out that over nine years for cats, it could be over 11 million. So... Um, These are all examples of how they can actually engage in some arithmetic exercises when we're going through our content.
0: Do you encourage field trips to animal shelters?
3: Absolutely. Um, we we work a lot with um, Animal Haven in um, downtown Manhattan. They have a great facility there, and there are others as well. We've even taken our students to on a field trip to Woodstock Farm Animal Sanctuary.
0: What would you say is the biggest challenge schools face in infusing humane education into their curricula?
3: Well, I think part of it is realizing that it need not be an add-on to their existing curriculum because schools have a lot of requirements. Teachers are really, they have a lot on their plate. And what we try to convey to them is that this isn't going to be an add-on or a burden, that it can be an enhancement. And that's really the key. I think teacher training is critical. This way teachers can see how easily they can incorporate humane education content into their existing lessons.
0: Funding, of course, is always an issue for schools. Does it cost money to do this?
3: We at heart offer our programs at no cost to public schools and other nonprofit agencies. Um, You know, we do also offer a course through the Department of Education. Um, This is our third year now doing it on enhancing science and literacy skills through humane education. And that's for New York City school teachers. It's a credit-bearing course, nominal fee, um, and it's a great way, I think, for teachers to learn. So professional development workshops are a great way for schools to seamlessly integrate humane education.
0: How do you approach biology and dissection?
3: Well, you know, there is a law in New York State that allows students to opt out of dissection if they have any objection. And um, this is now being strengthened by a recent passage of legislation that calls for schools to notify students of this right. Because before it was on the books and students didn't know and often they felt pressured um, to dissect even though they didn't want to. There are a lot of alternatives to dissection. And very good alternatives. So, um, you know, I think that even the top medical schools in this country have stopped live animal labs, and you know, are using computer alternatives. I was
0: going to say times have changed, times haven't have they? Changed.
3: And the beauty of the alternatives is that you can repeat the experiment. <laughs> you can you can do it over and over in practice. You can take more time, um, and you're not dealing with unnecessarily killing a number of animals. Mina, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you.
0: Mina Alagapin is the Executive Director of HART, which stands for Humane Education Advocates Reaching Teachers. The group is online at teachhumane.org. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm George Boraki. This morning, we're focusing our attention on animal welfare issues as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign. You can find more information about that at wfuv.org slash strikeacord. Every week, thousands of lost or abandoned dogs and cats are picked up on the streets of New York City and taken to the pound. Mark Ross worked as a volunteer photographer at the city's animal care and control shelter in Harlem. He's about to release a book featuring photos he took during his time there. It's simply called Animal Shelter Portraits. Mark, thanks for being here. My pleasure. What's the story behind this book?
4: Well, the the story is I
0: I began as a
4: volunteer photographer for the NYC, New York City Animal Care and Control, which is the city, New York City shelter system, animal shelter system. Uh, I started in April of 2009 uh, photographing cats and dogs. Um, I had heard that from a friend who, who volunteered with the animals there that they needed help, and it would make sense that both my wife and I Consider that because we love animals. We had cats of our own. Uh, so that's the story we started. I started in April 2009. My wife started right after me. Um,
0: so as a volunteer, you photographed cats and dogs at the shelter. At the shelter. And what did you do with those photographs?
4: Originally, when I started photographing, uh, they were submitted to another volunteer who uploaded them to the Chameleon Database, which is the uh, ACNC's own personal database. Uh, Additionally, I think at that time, early on, it was also submitted, they were submitted to PetFinder, which is a national database of Mm -hmm. animals.
0: To let people know that these animals are available for For adoption. adoption.
4: Right. Those were the... Not all the photographs were submitted to PetFinder. Only the healthy animals would be submitted to PetFinder because if you're not a healthy animal, you're not up for adoption. But I photographed those as well, those kinds of animals as well. And they were submitted to the database, and then from there, you would get a chance if you were the public, Joe Public, you would go online to the Internet, to the uh, database Pet Harbor, it's called. That's what they call the database for AC&C. And you could see what was available. You also could see if your cat or your dog was if they were missing, might happen to have been scooped up and taken there. That's where you'd be looking for them, hopefully. Uh, So it was a database of all animals for lots of reasons um, that had come into the shelter system. Uh, So I photographed them. They were up there, and that was the end of that. What changed was after a while I realized that very few people, very very few of the public, went on that database looking for animals. And many of the animals were just being, you know, lost. Lost in, in, in the system, within mm-hmm. the system, and so uh, I thought there's got to be another, a better way to get them out there for the public to f- to see them. And it occurred to me that I might try a. In this case, it was Facebook. And I thought, well, that's a, a viable source. My God, well, that, that's got to do something additional. So I began personally. Um, I started a Facebook page strictly for the animals, and which I still keep going, by the way. And um, I began submitting my photographs. Additionally, along with those that were being submitted on my behalf to the database, um, I began putting my animals on, my photographs of the animals on Facebook.
0: Was, was that within story. your right as a volunteer with animal care and control?
4: Well, that's a very pertinent question. Um, it, at that time, when I was first doing it, uh, it was never, never something they, they would have acquiesced to had I asked them, which is why, of course, I, I didn't ask them. Um, but they, they, were, they weren't contentious about it at, at, in the beginning. I don't think they were actually aware of what I was doing at first. And it took a period of time, I can't tell you how long, I don't recall, uh, before it came to their attention what I was doing, and they didn't like that. And they called me in, volunteer coordinator on behalf of the executive director called me in and um, wanted to know what I was doing, why I was doing it, and told me that they uh, would rather that I submit to them for their approval. Uh, I did not go along with that. I didn't want to go along with that. I knew what that meant, which you could guess that meant simply they would say no to me
0: because mm-hmm. that wasn't what they wanted me to do. So the bottom line right now, you are no longer a volunteer with Animal Care and Control because you did not want to sign your rights away to post these photos on Facebook, so to speak. Well, that's
4: what came about Yeah, sometime in, I guess, September of 2010 because that kept me a free agent to do with these photographs that I had taken over over. um well, over a year and a half of it, about at least 2,500 photographs so it allowed me to do what I wanted with them, which, which is how this book came about,
0: by the way. Why was it so important for you to maintain that control and to have the ability to put these photographs out there for the world to see?
4: I wanted them to be adopted in greater numbers than than they were
0: being, but as you mentioned, a number of these photos that you took were of sick animals. Now, are sick animals not available for adoption, even if you saw the photo, you couldn 't go in and say, "'I want that dog or cat right
4: right they would The public is not allowed to see anything other than those animals that are in adoptions, dogs and cats that are in adoptions,
0: but so, yet you wanted them to see the photographs of the sick well, animals too.
4: Yes, I did, because it was possible if you would see an an animal that you wanted to save, let's say a sick animal, you could get in touch with a rescue group, and they could pull that animal. That's the term they use. They could pull that animal on your behalf. So it didn't matter whether the animal was healthy or sick. uh, You go to a rescue group, and they can save that animal for you if you want it. Um, otherwise that those animals that were not in adoptions and that 's the vast majority of the animals that come into the shelter system are are not going into adoptions they they can 't there 's a very small room there 's not that many uh cages in there or kennels in there so and many of the animals um come in sick and if they don 't come in sick they 're going to become sick very quickly. Uh, that's a problem with the shelter system.
0: So you took some 2,500 photographs during your time with Animal Care and Control. This book, Animal Shelter Portraits, includes what? A little over 70, right?
4: About seven, uh, 76, I think, yeah.
0: 76. Yeah. And now, how did you choose the 76 for the book?
4: Well, it was very hard. I mean, At first, I, I, I couldn't do it. Um, you can imagine, I mean, you have too many things. And I, and I love so many. You don't just love the photographs. You love the animals, and you love so many of them. I, I just said, but I love this one. What about that one? Whoop, I'm over 300. I'm over 400. So I asked the creative director. I don't think that's this appropriate term, but I'll call him that, the creative director for Mark Batty Publisher, who is the publisher of this book. If he would make the decisions for me, and I would submit to him, and he said, well, okay, I'll do that. And he went ahead and did that. Then he did the layout and submitted a PDF to me from, just for me to see. I don't think it was so much for my approval as for me to see what he had done. And, and from there, I decided that I wanted certain animals in the book that weren't he hadn't selected. And, and so I said, can I, can I go ahead and do this? Because I felt you know, almost, uh, that I had to do this, that I, I had to make the, the decisions had to be mine. Uh, So he said, well, go ahead and do whatever you want, sure. So I made the final selections of, of 76.
0: Now, the book isn't out yet. It doesn't come out until March 27th. I looked at some of your photographs, though, online, and I have to say that some of them are, quite frankly, a little hard to look at because the animals are in pretty bad shape. They're pretty sick. Is it possible, Mark, that photos like that could have a negative effect on animal adoption because people may be concerned shelter animals are simply too sick to bring into their homes?
4: I suppose somebody will think that. I mean, if you had all cute photographs or happy photographs, and it's hard to find. I don't think I ever could have photographed, uh, uh, you know, just happy animals in that in that kind of a, you know, a posture. So uh, you have to photograph them the way they are when you find them and move on. You're doing thirty, thirty-five, forty at a time. You have no choice. You have to photograph them the way you find them. If they're not happy looking, what can you do? That's and if they're sick, you you have to. You have to deal with what, deal with what you've got. So there're going to be somebody, I'm sure there'll be people, that will say, look, I don't even want to look at a book like that. I've been told that. I've seen it written. Comments have been made on Facebook many times about people you know, people saying that. I think it's important to show the animals as they are. And if you can't stomach it, don't look at the book, then don't buy it.
0: But isn't it your hope, though, to drum up more support for adoption?
4: Yes. But you're, you're, what you looked at is not... The book. The -hmm. book is made up of 76 photographs, most of which are chosen by me um, for the very reason that you brought up, you know, that I didn't want to scare off people. And I wanted, in fact, to that, that parents might buy this book for their children. And that's not an outrageous idea, unless, of course, it's a frightening book. And so I made most of the photographs quite pleasant photographs. There are a few that are a little scary. Uh, Maybe the parent will will turn the page quickly, I hope. I don't know. But I don't think it's going to really scare off people or turn off people. I think think it's going to give a face to these beautiful creatures that are relinquished and forgotten about. And I think uh, as they are, as they really are.
0: The book is Animal Shelter Portraits. It will be out on March 27th. Mark, thanks so much for coming in.
4: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Mark Ross is a photographer here in New York City. His book, Animal Shelter Portraits, is published by Mark Batty Publisher. In response to the book's upcoming release, Animal Care and Control says it appreciates any opportunity to highlight shelter animals and publicize their need for adoption. However, they say Ross did not follow the process for picture-taking within the shelter and, as he admits, refused to agree to their protocol. In today's tough economic climate, a lot of people are struggling to make ends meet. Over the past few years, animal shelters have witnessed the impact of high unemployment and foreclosure rates. They've had to take in animals from families who simply couldn't afford to keep them anymore. That's where Susan Katz comes in. She's the founder of the Hudson Valley Pet Food Pantry, based in Valhalla in Westchester County. We recently paid her a visit.
2: Right now, we're sitting in a room full of pet food at our pantry in Valhalla, And we're in the middle of doing an inventory. We just did a major pet food drive at the Petco store on Central Avenue in Hartsdale. And we are now doing the inventory to bring that food into the pantry.
0: When did you start up the pantry?
2: The idea was conceived in 2008 by myself. And then I developed a core of people, animal-loving people, who were very enthusiastic of starting a pet food pantry. There isn't any of this type in the area. It took a lot of research, a lot of research and a lot of work. And we finally got our 501c3 in October of 2010. And we started full operation in February of 2011. What brought the idea to mind? Actually, I was watching the news, 11 o'clock news one night, and it was in 2008 fall. And it was talking about everything was collapsing at that time. And there was a segment on people having to foreclose their homes And at that same time, giving up their pets because they couldn't either bring them with them, they couldn't afford to feed them. And that led into a little segment on the news of how many people are having to give up their pets because they can't afford to feed them. And I thought, oh, my gosh, we have food banks for people. You know, why not a food bank for animals?
0: Here we are. Who are you serving primarily in the region?
2: We're serving economically challenged, disabled, and elderly residents of the Hudson Valley region. That's our mission. We provide free pet food to them. They come in every month and replenish a month's worth of food. And um, they, they have to go through a very strict interview process. They have to be income eligible, and we go by federal HUD guidelines on the income levels. And then once they're approved... Again, they come in monthly and pick up. Those that are homebound, we have volunteers that deliver their food to them.
0: What kinds of stories do you hear from these people?
2: All kinds of stories. We have a gal that was in, uh, she was an HR person with a major retailer, got laid off. She has two dogs, a cat, a two-year-old son, and she's trying to make ends meet on unemployment, desperately wants to keep her animals, found out about us and said, told us she would not have been able to keep her animals had it not been for our organization. We have another woman who has multiple sclerosis. Her husband just had a brain aneurysm and is out of work. They have two or three cats. They would not have been able to feed the cats because now they're on disability. So it's stories like that. Senior citizens who are homebound. Pet food's expensive, and it keeps going up. Seniors are on fixed income, so it helps them many of them have told us gee you know we don't buy that much for ourselves so that we can buy the pet food for our our animals so it it helps in that way
0: so you're helping to keep these families together, together.
2: that's the goal is to keep the families together to keep pets with their families pets are an important part of the family and uh, our goal is to keep them with their families
0: how large of an area do you serve
2: four counties we serve Westchester Rockland Putnam and Dutchess counties Right now, we're concentrating on Westchester because we're relatively new. We started distribution operations last March. We have a few clients that come down from Dutchess and Putnam County, from the Poughkeepsie area. Eventually, we will be expanding to Rockland, you know, and and doing more outreach uh, in those areas. And our long-range goal is to have a pantry in each of those counties.
0: Has it been difficult to keep up with the demand?
2: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Uh, We average about 10 to 15 new clients a month. Now, a given client might have three or four cats, you know, to provide them with the food they need. We have to keep this pantry well stocked. And we do that by doing pet food drives at area supermarkets and pet related stores. We get cash contributions. We have small fundraising events. And that's the way we've kept it going. But yes, it's really hard to, to meet the demand. Because we don't know in a given month if 50 people are going to come and, and, and need our help. And we really don't want to turn people away, you know. So we do what we can to try and keep the pantry stocked. Is there any one thing,
0: Susan, that has surprised you most since you began this pet food pantry?
2: I'm truly in awe of the generosity of people. You know, animals, you know, you basically have a soft spark for animals unless you really don't like animals. But um, we had, PepsiCo, for example, did a drive for us at all four of their plants in Westchester. New York Life did a drive. The outpouring of people that, small businesses that want to do little drives in their offices, you know, um, kennels that do drives. We get donations in the mail that are a dollar or two dollars. And you could tell the writing is really scratchy. So am I surprised I have a tremendous amount of faith in the human spirit, and I think that all of us have that goodness in us to want to give to something that we really connect to. And I think with animals, that we're helping animals and people stay together, that's a really good connection, you know? So I'm more in awe than surprised at, at the outpouring of support we're getting.
0: I would imagine that it can be as psychologically traumatic on an animal as it is for an adult when they have to part ways because of financial reasons.
2: Well, sure, an animal gets taken to a shelter, you know, not by choice of, of the owner, but, you know, that animal then gets put into a cage in a shelter with a lot of other animals barking and meowing, and it might be cold, it might be, have bugs, you know, and uh, it's absolutely traumatic. You know, we've heard that a lot of animals don't last when they're brought to the shelters. They just, you know, die of a broken heart. They're not with their loved ones. And we try and avoid that. That's what we're trying to do. So all the shelters have our flyers up. And we've gotten a lot of referrals that way from the shelters.
0: All right, Susan, thanks so much. And best of luck with this.
2: Thank you. Thanks so much.
0: Susan Katz is the founder of the Hudson Valley Pet Food Pantry. They're online at hvpetfoodpantry.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. For more information about WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on animal welfare issues, visit wfuv.org slash strikeaccord. I'm George Bolarki. My thanks to producers Julie Clark and Vanson Lee. Have a great weekend.